You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Well, how's everybody doing? It's good to see you. And uh, I appreciate you guys making it through this hurricane tundra that we've been surviving. I have a friend that just moved to Florida this past week, and he calls me and he says, is the only thing that you people talk about is hurricanes? And, uh, and I said, yeah, we get a little carried away. Uh, I said, and we do because the news tells us that every hurricane that comes is the one that's going to end civilization as we know it. And I'll be honest, I hate talking about hurricanes because the people that insist on talking about hurricanes all the time, if you notice this, the ones that fancy themselves meteorologists, they make me crazy. I'm like, dude, you don't even own an umbrella. Like, don't talk about hurricanes. Um, <clears throat> but I remember when, um, when Irma came through, I guess about three years ago, uh, we, we went to Atlanta, but then on our way back from Atlanta, we stopped in Orlando. If you want to go to a city totally unprepared for a hurricane, Orlando, Florida is the place. And so, you know, we were, dri- we were driving down 192, uh, which is, you know, kind of the main road there in Orlando. And, um, you know, billboards were knocked down and places were out of power. Signs were broken. There was a Waffle House near where the hotel we were staying at. And the W had been knocked down. It said Awful House. <laughs> and uh, so I did appreciate Irma revealing some truth. And so, <clears throat> but <clears throat> I have this theory as to why we don't take hurricanes seriously. And if you want to know why, I'll tell you what it is. Well, you're like, well, what am I doing? I can't say no, but um, it's because the names of the hurricanes aren't scary enough. That's the real problem here. Like Fred. <laughs> Fred is not terrifying. I know a Fred. He's delightful. Someone said, you know, Fred's coming. I'm like, oh, awesome. I love Fred. They're like, oh, no, different Fred. And, uh, and you know the one before Fred? You know the one before Fred uh, this year? Elsa. Like, hey, hurricane people, stop naming the stuff after Disney rides, and maybe we'll take it seriously. Anyway, so the next one is Grace, then Henry, then Ida. Like, like some kind of, like now they're giving us exotic European names. Like, you know, she was an international model before she got into the hurricane business. Uh, and, and like, I'm telling you, if they let me name hurricanes, and I have a working list that I've been going with. Uh, just in case I ever talk about this enough and they say, we're going to let you name some. Like one that I have, Hurricane Wet Assassin. (laughs) So that's one that I have. Uh, Hurricane Executioner is another one I have. But if you really want to scare people, and this is the thing, like like, we could now get them sponsored. Um, So I have this idea, we could name them after the credit card companies. (laughs) Then people are like, Hurricane Capital One is coming! What's in my wallet? And so, anyway, I'm telling you, people would start, that now they'd be running. So, <clears throat> now, here's why I tell you all of this. There is a reason, believe it or not. <clears throat> Pardon me. But, um, you know, in all of, we, the, the, they tell us hurricane's coming, we turn on the news, and then we're watching, and now there's another going to be a report at 1. It's going to be another report at 5. It's going to be another report at 11 p.m. And we're all watching. We only want one piece of information. And it is the one piece of information they never tell us. 
And it's a, they'll tell us, can we tell you about the strength of the storm? Oh, can we tell you about how the storm is organized? Like, do we really care about, like, the corporate structure of this? St- like, nobody, no, we want, we want one piece of information. Is the storm hitting us or not? That's it. The problem is we would turn it off after five seconds. Storm's not coming. Click. What, what else is on? Is Judge Judy on? Now we're back to that. And so, but this is the problem. And, and listen, in the same way, in the same way, we can talk about so many things when it comes to faith, Jesus, Christianity. Um, but you know that the really, <clears throat> there is one thing that is most important. One thing that makes all the other things that we talk about matter. One thing that if this isn't true, none of the other stuff matters. So we better make sure that the most important thing is true. What is that? That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else about Christianity that Christianity teaches or touches on flows from it and it matters because of the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, then none of it matters for anything more than simply trivia. But see, our faith is built on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus. And that is the argument that the Apostle Paul is going to make throughout the uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we are in, if you can believe this, the 19th message in a series that we've been calling a beautiful mess. And the reason we call it a beautiful mess is because this was a church, that this church in Corinth, and if you're not aware, Corinth is a city in southern Greece. And this is a church that the Apostle Paul planted, spent two years there. They had spiritual gifts. They had teachers. There there was this beautiful community that had formed. But they were such a disaster because there was infighting and division and all kinds of problems. So he writes them this letter that we have been studying in depth now for months. And we're getting to the end. We only have a couple messages left. But he writes to them, uh, encouraging them that in a divided world, we need a united church. Now, we've been doing this. Uh, each message, but just so that everybody is on the same page, if we can look at this book from 35,000 feet for just a moment. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are corrective in nature. It's Paul correcting all of the problems that are happening in the church. Then starting in chapter 7, he makes this transitional statement where he says, now concerning the questions that you wrote to me about. And this is where Paul spends the rest of the book answering the questions that these believers had about different areas of life and theology and how it impacts how we live. So in chapter 7, he talks about singleness and marriage for Christians. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, he deals with a very specific issue about what you can and can't eat as a Christian locally. But then he talks kind of more philosophically at the time about what happens when Christians are on opposite sides of a particular argument. How do we disagree without vilifying the other? And what he does is he says to the person who is more mature that they might need to curb their freedom. And he says to the person who is immature that they have to stop being so offended. And and that's one of the things that is the mark of someone who is immature or or what Paul would call weak in the faith is that they're easily offended. In chapter 11, Paul starts talking about church services, how they ought to operate in a way that honor God. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts, that all of us have spiritual gifts, that we are all members of the body of Christ. And then he goes into detail 
describing spiritual gifts, he stops at the end of chapter 12 and says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. In chapter 13, he talks about love because love is the only legitimate motivator for using our gifts. And then he spends the rest of uh, that discussion in chapter 14 talking about how these gifts should be used in a way that is um, decent and orderly in church services. And now in chapter 15, Paul is going to tackle what we believe is the most important topic of all. In fact, most, the, not I would say most, but many theologians believe this is the most important chapter in the Bible. I happen to be one of them. Um, because if this chapter matters and it's true, then every other chapter matters. And Paul is going to lay the foundation. And, and just so you know, this chapter is so important, we're going to break it up into a couple of parts But this message is really going to lay the foundation for the graduate level stuff that we're going to do in in the next couple of messages. But when we're done with this chapter, listen, you're going to have a firm grasp on the reality of what makes our faith true. Perfect timing. I'm going to get that right now. Um, Because you're going to have a grasp on what makes our faith true, and you're going to have a faith that is unshakable. Now, here's the thing that's important, and the thing that is important for us to know, especially as Christians, is that if you were part of some other faith, and this is the thing that makes Christianity so different, is that we have a faith that invites questions, that invites scrutiny, that, in, that invites us saying, hey, don't take our word for it, look for the evidence, dig for it, And what you're going to find is that your faith is even stronger in the process. Part of it, you're part of another faith. And if you were, or you know someone who is, that's not how it is. Somebody has questions like, no, shut up. That's what you have to, it's that or nothing. You don't ask questions. That's not how Christianity works. I've always said Christianity is the thinking man's faith. And so once again, what we're going to do is explore this, this idea of the resurrection, why it matters and why it happens. So we're going to start in chapter 15 in verse one. Here's what we read. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to tell you in reference to the resurrection. But the first is this, is that the resurrection gives our faith a firm footing. The first two verses of this chapter serve as the introduction to the real meat of what we're going to look at. But I want you to notice that when he says to you, I declare to you the gospel, he says that they did five things with the gospel in these verses. They heard it, they received it, they stand in it, they were saved by it, and they're holding fast to it. So as we get started and say, okay, the gospel, I hear that, what does that mean? If you're a note taker, the, go- the word gospel means good news. <clears throat> and if there's good news, that means there's bad news. The bad news is that sin separates us from God. And we're grateful that God made a way for us to experience forgiveness of sins and for God to remain just. And so, and that is by Jesus dying for us. Now, but let's ask the question that people ask. And it's a very valid question. If you've um, ever shared the gospel with someone or told someone you're a Christian and, 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 and you say, well, why are you Christian? You know, Jesus died for me. Um, well, why did Jesus have to die? And then a lot of times we'll say, well, Jesus died for my sins. Well, why did he have to die for your sins? Why couldn't God just forgive you? Right? Because we forgive people. 
right? Why can't God just forgive people? And, and, and I'm guessing that you've maybe at some point in your life been deeply hurt by someone and you just forgave. And you didn't need a sacrifice, right? If someone cuts you off in traffic um, and, and then, you know, you get to the intersection and you see them and they're like, hey man, I'm so sorry I, I cut you off. And you're like, man, I forgive you, but... I demand a sacrifice. Give me your spare tire and we'll call it even, right? No, you didn't. You just forgave, right? Um, the greater miracle is that someone asked for forgiveness after cutting you off. Um, but listen, and I think that we would agree God is much more forgiving than we are. So it begs the question, why is God requiring something to forgive that we don't require? So let's start at the beginning. The beginning of the story is in my older sister's basement. I was at, uh, it was in her basement uh, one Thanksgiving. And just so you know, in Boston, the way it typically works, really pretty much anywhere outside of Florida, is that you buy a house with a basement, and then you build it out, and you basically got like an extra five, 600 square feet of house. And so, anyway, and then people, people build it out as like a game room or an extra bedroom or whatever. So um, my sister built it out as like a game room or whatnot. So... <clears throat> So my nephews and I are playing darts. And so it's Thanksgiving. There's a million people in the house, but we're downstairs playing darts. So I'm, um, they go upstairs. That's where all the food is. So they go upstairs to get something, but it's my turn. And I throw the dart, and I'm telling you, this happened. Because as the story will go, they don't believe me, but I'm telling you, this happened. I hit the bullseye. I start screaming. They run down the stairs because they think I've been injured somehow. And they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, better than okay, I hit the bullseye. And they were like, Uncle Robert, you're always joking around. This is serious. We're playing for points. And I don't really understand the point system, but that doesn't matter because I hit the bullseye, so I won. And, they're, and, and I'm like, well, whatever. I hit the bullseye. And they're like, be serious. And I'm like, I'm totally serious. Anyway, they didn't believe me, and then I broke the thing. No, I didn't. But that would have been a good end to the story. I broke it over their head. No, I didn't. Um, but he, listen, but even though I hit the bullseye once, I miss the bullseye regularly. Now, the reason I tell you that is because the word sin in the Bible is this Greek word, hamartia. Now, hamartia is an archery term. It is a word that means to, mi to miss the bullseye. It means to miss the mark. And this is aiming for the bullseye and, and not getting it. What is the bullseye? According to God, the, the, Paul would say this. This is everybody's score. For all have sinned, all have hamartia, missed the bullseye, and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, right? no, there's nobody here claiming perfection. right? We all realize we've fallen short of even our own standards. We've certainly fallen short of God's standards. Now, so that's the problem. That's the bad news. The other problem is, is that there is a penalty for missing the mark. And God, as the judge, gets to decide. And back in the book of Genesis, he said that when you sin, that that's going to invite death into your life. So miss, the price for missing the mark is death. The, hot, the, the harshest sentence possible. And the challenge is, is that we sometimes think that that's a little too strong. And we will say, well, shouldn't God forgive me because I'm generally good? Well, that, that may be true, but the goal isn't to be generally good. That's not the bullseye. Good enough isn't the standard. Perfection is the standard. 
In fact, it was the younger brother of Jesus, James, who wrote it, said it like this. He says, the person who keeps all of God's laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. <clears throat> For the same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you murder someone, you've broken the entire law, even if you don't commit adultery. It, it kind of works like this. It's like getting pulled over for doing 80 in a 45. Officer comes over and he says, can I see your license and registration, proof of insurance? And he says, do you know why I stopped you? And like every other person, when they're stopped by a cop, we say, no, I had no idea. I'm... You were going literally 1,000 miles an hour. Was I? Didn't feel like it. I, you know, I didn't even notice. I had the radio on. And, uh, and, and so, but what happens is he says, no, you were, you were speeding, you were going, you know, 80 and a 45. And, but imagine if our excuse was, but officer, think about all the laws that I wasn't breaking. Right, I have my seatbelt on. Check the trunk. I don't have anybody in there. I have kidnapped no one. There's no contraband in here. I used my turn signal when I was changing lanes. Like, right, that doesn't matter. That's not the way it works. And because we've broken the law, justice demands payment. My friends, that's why Jesus died. Because Jesus died. Listen, here's what he did. He set the highest possible standard. He set the harshest possible penalty. But then showed that he was incredibly loving by paying the price on our behalf. That's why Paul would write in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see... God doesn't forgive like we forgive because we aren't trying to be just in our forgiveness. We're trying to be loving and, and be kind in our forgiveness. God is seeking to do both. And because we forgive arbitrarily, that's the other thing. We forgive who we want, if we want, when we want. God's forgiveness isn't arbitrary. We want God to be just, and he is. And if God is going to forgive me, he can't just forgive me. He's going to forgive you. And if he forgives you, then he's got to forgive everybody who asks for it. Could you imagine if God said, I'm only going to forgive certain people? We would cry that it's not fair. But see, what God does is that he sets a standard to satisfy his justice, to ensure fairness and show his incredible love for us. So he says, here's the thing. The standard is perfection, but he's not going to leave us there. He says, look, the standard is perfection, but because I know you can't be perfect, I'm going to be perfect on your behalf. That's why Jesus died. That's why the gospel is such good news because our God who loves us came in the form of Jesus to be perfect on our behalf. And now Paul is going to define the gospel for us in verse 3. He says this, For I declared to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for us according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me, as one born out of due time. If you pause there and give me your attention. <coughs> Second thing I want to tell you about the resurrection, that is that the resurrection gives our faith ample proof. Now, I am a guy who likes telling stories, and I love telling stories to you, but I even more love telling stories to my kids. 
And sometimes I tell them stories of things that happened, and sometimes I just make up the stories as I go. Like last night, we were watching a show, and I paused it, and then the Apple TV, the Apple TV came on. You know how that has like different screensavers? And there was this one of, um, it was like a scene over London. And I was telling the kids, and I'm like, man, I remember when I took that video. I was flying, I was sitting on top of a drone over old London town. I was there on business. And I just started, and once again, I have no idea where these stories are going. They, I just start, and sometimes they're hilarious, and sometimes they're a total dud, and, uh, but nonetheless. So the problem is, is that sometimes I tell stories, and then my kids turn to their, they turn to their mom, and they're like, do I believe this? And, uh, and they're like, yes, this one actually happened. And so anyway, it's very confusing growing up in my house. And um, so anyway, now uh, I try to walk a few times a week, but uh, so a few months ago I was out, I guess it was a little more than that, but I, anyway, one day I was out walking before we moved, and um, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, <clears throat> and I was attacked by three geese. True story. Um, and they started, I, I, they just came out of nowhere and started screaming, Aflac, you know, whatever they say. And, uh, and they just, and they started chasing me. And they were like running, flying to attack. And I just started running like the wind um, to, to escape, amazingly. Now, I was on, a, on the phone with a friend of mine the whole time. And so I'm, I'm running. And uh, I, I, amazingly, I outran them. And he's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just had no idea how fast I could run. And, uh, and he's like, really? So anyway, I look up later, and I, I, I Google this, and uh, I find out that geese can fly up to 40 miles an hour. I don't know if you know what that means. That means I can run 41 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. Well, as you can imagine, my friends, my family did not believe that I had been attacked by geese at all. Anyway, so a short time later, the only person who did believe me was my daughter, Olivia. And so my daughter, Olivia, said, hey, can I go walking with you today? And I said, sure. And so I knew that she believed me because she brought a Nerf gun with her. My daughter Olivia is a strong believer in the Second Amendment. So she had Nerf guns, she had bullets uh, to spare. And sure enough, as we're walking, the geese try to attack. And anyway, between the Nerf guns and a stick that I had found, uh, we, we were able to uh, evade these devil-worshipping geese. And, um, and so... But there were still people who did not believe. And, and they were like, well, maybe Livy's in on it, you know. And so until one day, not that, not that long after, one day <clears throat> a friend of my wife's shows up at our house, spends the afternoon um, at, at our house with, with her and her kids and, and my wife and, and our kids, and then they're, they're going to leave. And the geese show up in my driveway. And the geese start their attack formation. And they start going after the, this little two-year-old boy that was, that was a friend of ours' son. And, and my wife takes a broom and starts swinging and going after these, these geese. Um, now, what I, the best part of the story is that, and I've actually, I saw it happen, not because I was there, but because instead of helping, my daughter Mia videotaped the entire incident 
And, um, and, and that is just some of the most important video that we have uh, in our home. And it's famous now in, in our house. And so now, and the point is you don't even have to take my word for it anymore because everyone has had an experience with it and I have outside verification. Now, here's what Paul is doing. Same way. He's verifying that the resurrection took place and he's building a case of how it happened. And he's going to do this. He's not just going for eyewitness testimony. He's going to back up a little bit. And he's going to say this, that Jesus dying, being buried, and rising again, first of all, was not something that got cooked up later. It was something that the Bible had been predicting through predictive prophecy for hundreds of years. And so, and by the way, if you're not aware, there are over 350 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, just to give you one. just to give you one. Let me read you this. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we are like, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, this is just one portion of Isaiah chapter 53, and if you'll read the entire chapter, you'll you'll find that this describes not only the Messiah's beating, his burial, his crucifixion, I mean, it not only describes how the Messiah is going to die, but that he's going to not only be buried, but even what kind of burial he's going to have, that he's going to be buried with the rich, which is what we saw with Joseph of Arimathea. And so... And once again, this, this passage has always been problematic. And uh, in fact, in many Hebrew schools today, uh, when students are learning, they literally just skip over chapter 53. Um, some interpret it as, well, the, this is just talking about Israel in general, which obviously is not. It's very specific. Um, now, there, th- this has caused problems because there's many passages like this in the Hebrew scriptures where it talks about the Messiah as one who's suffering. And then there's other passages that talk about the Messiah as a conquering king. And, and it, it really it led to many um, rabbis and ancient theologians thinking that when the Messiah came, that there would actually be two Messiahs. And so there was this idea that there would be what was called Messiah ben Joseph. Messiah ben Joseph was the one that was like the, this was the suffering servant that was like uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis that came through uh, all these trials to then prominence in Egypt. Um, then the second was what they called the Messiah ben David, Messiah son of David, that was the conquering king. That would, uh, and once again, as Christians, we understand this is one Messiah, two visits. And, um, and by the way, for those that are keeping score at home, well, they're not keeping score at home. People are at home. They're heating up bagels while they watch this. Um, but for those that are here that are watching, um, 
You say, well, you talk, so that's a passage about his death, a passage about his burial. What about a passage about the resurrection? So let me give you one in particular, and there's a reason why I'm giving you this one. Um, in Psalm 16, <clears throat> he says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Now, there's several, but I want to give you this one in particular. Why is this an important one? Because when the Apostle Paul is giving one of his first sermons in Acts chapter 13, and he's talking about the resurrection, this is the passage that he quotes that the resurrection was something that God was foretelling would take place. So, let me read it to you. This is in Acts 13. It says this, For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else. Someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. So I want you to notice that Paul begins, when he talks about the resurrection, he talks about it that, hey, this is something that biblically was foretold a lot, you know, hundreds of years ago, that it was part of God's plan. And then he gives us the second proof that the resurrection happened. He lists all the people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And by the way, Paul isn't the only one saying that Jesus appeared to people. The writer Luke when he writes the book of Acts, he opens it this way. He says, During the 40 days after he, Jesus, suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways, and another translation says, many infallible proofs that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, as we read earlier, that he appeared to Cephas, the 12, 500 people at once, James, uh, the apostles, and then, and, uh, uh, of course, to Paul himself. He talks about Peter. Why mention Peter uh, first? Because Peter was a very well-known disciple of Jesus. He was publicly beaten for his faith. That was well-known. That's recorded in the book of Acts more than once. And he had every opportunity to recant his faith and spare himself of the beatings. And he never did. The second thing it says is that not only did he appear to Peter, he appeared to the 12. Now, the 12 would be the 12 main disciples of Jesus, of course, not counting Judas Iscariot. Um, third, it says that he, Jesus appeared to over 500 brethren at once. Now, I want you to notice something, and I want to park on this one for a moment, because even the most ardent skeptics of Christianity, I'm talking about people that are not Christians, and I'm not talking about I'm not a Christian, but I'm just not like, you know, for it or against. I'm talking about people that are um, antagonistic towards Christianity. Even the most ardent skeptics of Christianity date the writing of 1 Corinthians to just a few years after the resurrection. Now, I said this at the, our very first message, which was like a million years ago. But, um, and this is important, meaning that the people who saw Jesus alive after, after he rose were still alive themselves. This is why the skeptics don't dispute the resurrection. They don't dispute something happened. They just come up with an alternative theory as to what happened. Now, I'll tell you one of the theories, and um, every year around Easter it comes up. This, this book uh, came out, I'd say about 100 and 
I guess it's got to be about over 100 years ago, 120 years ago. And uh, it was called the Passover plot. And this was, uh, it created what was called the swoon theory. The swoon theory was that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. And so then when Jesus, people saw Jesus, it was like, oh, he just woke up. And so now if we can just kind of walk through the swoon theory for a minute. So Jesus was beaten. And, and once again, if you've ever been to one of our Good Friday services, we've talked about how Jesus was beaten. I mean, he beaten within an inch of his life. Beaten so badly that when Pilate saw he was still alive, he says to the crowd, behold the man. Like, this is not just an ordinary man. This is a person who has taken a beating and he's still standing. So he's been beaten within an inch of his life, losing blood. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They've put a purple robe on him to mock him after they beat him. So now this, his back is wide open. Um, he's bleeding. And now all of this is all kind of soaking into this robe that's now sticking to his back. They make him carry a cross. Uh, um, you know, if you come with us to Israel, we'll, we'll actually walk that path. Um, from this Roman praetorium to the uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull, they put him on a cross for now hours. He's dying of thirst. Um, they pierce his side and water and blood come out, which is the pericardium now has exploded, um, which is why water and blood have come out. That sack around his heart has burst. And then, uh, by the way, they've ripped that robe off of him. So now it's all like raw and he's on the cross. And then they throw him in a tomb. But then he wakes up apparently. And with no medical attention, he's able to roll a two ton stone away from the tomb and just be like, Hey guys, what's up? Wow. Tough weekend. Um, like Like, that's what we're going with. I don't know. That's what we're going with. And once again, this is the reason why. This is the reason why the swoon theory kind of makes uh, its appearance every once in a while, but nobody takes it seriously. So what skeptics a lot of times talk about is they'll say that it was a mass hallucination. That's what the 500 people that saw Jesus. It was a mass hallucination. The problem is, is that hallucinations don't happen it would be a miracle to say that two people saw the same hallucination. They're saying 500 people saw the same hallucination. So that would be a miracle. But for the, for the sake of argument, if they say, okay, well, I'm just going to choose to believe that miracle instead of the resurrection. You believe the resurrection was the miracle. I believe the mass hallucination was the miracle. But see, here's the problem. That wasn't the only mass hallucination. Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb. That's in one mass hallucination. He appeared to the men on the road to Emmaus. That's another hallucination. He appeared to the 12 without Thomas. He appeared to the 12 with Thomas. He appeared to these 500. He appeared at the end of the gospel of Matthew to the 120 believers before he ascended to heaven. Now we're having several mass hallucinations and now the thing just starts falling apart because there's really a better theory. And that is that this thing actually happened. And by the way, you want to know what's even easier to know why this would actually happen is because of the fourth person. It says that James, 
he, he appeared to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. If you're not aware, Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary had more kids um, after Jesus was born. They had several children. <clears throat> and those brothers were not very enthusiastic about Jesus' messianic ideas. Um, in fact, they thought he was crazy. And in fact, if you read like John chapter 7, they were downright antagonistic towards Jesus. They're like, oh, if you think you're the Messiah, you should go to Jerusalem, right? That's where all you Messiah types go. And you should just, you know, like show up there, prove that you're the Messiah there, right? And so, <clears throat> in fact, in um, Mark chapter 3, it says this. It says, one time Jesus entered a house and crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. And when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. <coughs> his brothers were not believers. They did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was crazy. So let me ask this question. How many of you have a brother? All right, a lot of you, look at that. A lot of you have a brother. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? Like, what if you, one day your brother was like, hey man, I gotta talk to you about something. Yeah, what's up, are you all right? This is serious. Um, I'm the son of God. Shut up. Seriously, I'm the son of God. Don't start. Don't sin against me. You know, I mean, it's like, what, what is even that? How does that conversation even work, right? And I mean, what would it take? It, I'm, it would take more than him just telling you he was the son of God. You're like, why? Now, let me give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my, my older brother uh, led me and my wife to Jesus. We were just dating at the time, but he led us both to Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and up until recently, he, he lived in Boston. And so my brother was at a uh, church conference, a men's conference in New Hampshire. And a guy walks up to him. He has his name tag. And uh, the guy says, Billy Frank was, are, are you happen to be related to Bob Frank was the author? And uh, my brother says, yeah, that's my, that's my younger brother. And the guy starts, uh, this is a court, my, bro, my brother's telling me the story. And he's, my, the guy starts going on and on about how much he loves my books and subscribes to the Calvary podcast. And he and his pastor went to one of our, one of the events that I do for pastors and church leaders and how much I've blessed his life or whatever. And my brother's like, okay, good for you. And moves on. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, this is a pretty big event. I mean, there's, I think it's like a thousand people at this conference that he's at. And so anyway, a little while later, another guy walks up to him and he says, Frank was, hey, uh, that's not kind of an unusual last name. Any relation to Bob Frank was? And he goes, yes, that's my brother. And he goes, man, your brother's books have been such a blessing. In fact, and he, the guy was a pastor, and he says, we actually use your brother's book, Begin. We give them out to all of our new believers at, at the church. And, uh, and my brother says, you know, he kept talking about you. I just walked away. He may have said more, but I just couldn't listen. And um, so anyway, then a <clears throat> um, little while later, third guy walks up. I love this story so much. Um, <laughs> More than I should. So I, my, um, guy, a third guy walks up to my brother, and he's like, 
hey, Frank was, are you? And my, he goes, yes, he's my brother. I grew up with him. He's not awesome. And just walks away. And, uh, and, and, he's, and my brother's like, I'm sorry. It's just as much as I could take. And I'm like, it's okay, man. Haters gonna hate. And uh, <clears throat> now, listen. It's like, I mean, it's not anywhere near the same thing. But I'm telling you, if it's like, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. And, 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 and people are like, people are starting to believe. And they're like, no, it can't be. Not Jesus. Not the one we grew up with. Not the one that our mom was like, why can't you be more like your brother? And look, he always finishes his plate. Even when there was no food left, he kind of mixed something up and made extra. And so, right, there was always this. And so for, the, for his brothers to believe, listen, the evidence had to be incontrovertible because they had seen him alive after he had died. By the way, one thing that I forgot to mention, what we read in verses three and four, when he says, for I delivered uh, to you that which I also received. That's an important um, phrase. He says that Christ died for us according to, uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is quoting, when he says that I'm giving to you that which I also received, Paul is quoting a Christian creed that was already in existence in the, Christian, in the church community. Now, if you're not aware of what a creed is, um, <clears throat> a creed is a carefully crafted statement. Remember, most people in this culture could not read and could not write, and even if they could read, they didn't have access um, to reading material. So consequently, what would happen in the Jewish community did this first, and the Christian community followed, and that is that they would craft statements to make sure that every generation was holding on to and believing the same truths and saying it the same way for generations to come. So by the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there was already a creed established about the resurrection. Why? Because the Christian church in Jerusalem embraced this creed immediately, not eventually. This is why, this is one of the things that skeptics say, and if you ever watch one of those like Jesus specials on the History Channel, they'll, they'll, put, they'll bring someone out, you know, like Bart Erdman is a big, uh, you know, probably the, one of the more leading skeptics, and he'll say, well, the idea of the resurrection, um, you know, developed over the course of decades and, you know, after the first 150 years of the church, the data would tell us something very different. The eyewitnesses, embraced the resurrection immediately because they saw that he was still alive. This was an immediate thing. That's why the creed immediately began. So by the time, just a few years later, after Paul is writing now 1 Corinthians, um, this was already an established creed. So he is repeating something to them that they had already heard and knew. Well, <clears throat> just to finish these six people, he, fifth, he says he's seen by all of the apostles. And just so you know, um, when he talks about apostles, he's not just talking about the 12 apostles that we would know. The word apostles means sent ones. So there's a larger group there. There's the 12 that was encompassed in that. But it's all of those who were sent out to start churches and preach the word. Jesus appeared to all of those, uh, all of those guys. And then lastly, Paul says uh, that he had appeared to him, which, as you know, is recorded in the book of Acts chapter 9. Then he says this, this is where we'll close it. He says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. If you pause there and give me your attention. Last thing I want to tell you is that the resurrection gives our faith gracious opportunity. Um, Paul did not grow up a Christian. In fact, it was just the opposite. He was a very zealous Jew that worked to eradicate Christianity. And it was then in, in the middle of that that Jesus appeared to him and his life was transformed. Now, there's something that I want to talk about that I think is very interesting because it, it's, it's, it almost doesn't make sense because this is a very theologically dense passage. And then at the end, Paul brings up something so personal. And what happens is, is that Paul never forgot where he came from and what his past looked like. He never glossed over the things that he had done before becoming a Christian. Instead, what he said was, is that, and this is what he's saying, is that he now uses his past as motivation for his service. He says, if I was motivated to do harm to the church before becoming a Christian, I'm going to be twice the blessing after the fact. And it brings up this kind of interesting paradox. Now, before I tell you that, let me tell you something kind of strange. And that is that I love, um, I love bad tattoos. And so what I mean is my friends, and every once in a while they'll send me a picture of one. Like, have you seen this one? And it is, it's hilariously bad. So I'll tell you, one, I'll show you one I really like. And that is this one. Only God can jug me. And there's something got forgotten. But only God can jug me. And um, I love that one. I love this one. And this was, this guy got all fast food. And he still has a thumb available, so he could still get the Five Guys logo um, for, for all of that. Um, but this is, my all-time, this is my all-time favorite. No regerts. And um, <clears throat> no regerts is the greatest tattoo of all time. And it, because the thing that I love about no regerts is that it creates kind of an existential dilemma, right? This is now a philosophical problem. It has nothing to do with a bad decision. Um, because if you do regret it, right? If you regret it, you're a hypocrite. And if you don't regret it, you're a moron. And this is where you just, you, so you got to choose wisely. And so now I say that messing around because I want to talk about a paradox. And, um, that Paul brings up. And the paradox is this. When God forgives us, he forgives and he forgets. So we don't ever have to walk around defeated because in Christ, God calls us overcomers. However, Paul was an overcomer who made this conscious decision that he was never going to forget his failings or his past. And it became a powerful tool in his life. Not a tool to prove how awesome he was and how awesome he is now compared to what he used to be. No, instead it was a tool to show how God's grace can extend to anyone. You see, if you've been like the worst husband in the world and then you've come to know Jesus and you receive God's forgiveness, listen, 
Here's what Paul's point would be. Don't forget who you used to be. Not because you're trying to earn God's love or earn your family's love, but no, remember this, that through it all, you were still loved even when you didn't realize it. That whatever your past and whoever you used to be, listen, when you came to know Jesus, that person is gone. (coughs) When you're in Christ, you are a brand new creation. But here's my hope, is that just because that person is gone, that you don't forget that person, who, that, who you used to be. Because every time you remember, not to beat yourself up, but you remember God's incredible grace in your life. And you'll remember how far you've come. And you'll remember how much that you have been loved. And you'll remember that none of what God has done is because we were so smart or so clever or so wise, but simply because we're loved by him and because he wants to do good in our lives. So, you know, Paul puts this very personal ending to a very theological passage about the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus starts at Jesus, but it doesn't end there. The resurrection of Jesus continues because the resurrection is about rising from death to life. And every time someone believes in the resurrection now is inspired, they go from death to life and they rise. And listen, and that's my question to you. Do you want to rise? And do you want to be free? You see, God wants to set us free from the things that are holding us back and the things that are holding us down. And listen, he wants to start changing our lives right now. So I'm going to invite all of us to stand. You know, if we want our lives to change, something has to change. That's how it works. And when something changes, everything changes. And sometimes we find ourselves in a moment like this and we say, man, that's great. I'm not into God. That's great. Guess what? God's into you. You know, Paul's story, I'm reminded of it in my own life because, you know, God tracked Paul down. And I can tell you this in my own life. I wasn't looking for God. But I'm very grateful that God was looking for me. And listen, Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and changed. And some of us, we're already Christians, and we're like, yeah, I know that. And and some of us, we need to be reminded, but it's like we're, we're Christians, but we're living like we're dead, like we haven't been risen. So maybe it's time to rise. Time to rise above your past, rise above your failures, rise above your pain, rise above your guilt and fear and doubt. Maybe it's time to rise above who you used to be and rise into the life that God has for you because God wants to take your life and transform it and that begins with forgiveness. So what I want to do as we close is I want to pray for you as we close and the band is going to play in just a moment and as they do, um, I'm going to invite you, you're already standing, I'm going to just invite you to meet me here at the edge of this stage. 
And when they do, we're gonna, we're gonna pray that we go from death to life, that we would rise, that we would leave this place different than when we came in and that God would do his transformative work in us and through us. When they start playing, you come forward, meet us here, and we're going to see God do something amazing as we close. So I'm going to invite Johan to lead us. I know this, that when we call out to God, he hears us. And when we pray in sincerity, that he will answer and act. And that we can leave this place different than when we came in. As I told you, the Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You see, we don't have to be controlled by what we used to be. Instead, we can be driven by who God is calling us to be. So I want to pray for you. I want to lead you in a simple prayer and watch God do the rest. Church, let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you so much for every person who's taken a step in your direction for you to do your great work in them. I pray, Lord, that as they call out to you, that you would hear, that you would answer and act and do what only you can do and transform a human life that's surrendered to you. Those of you that have come forward, I'm going to invite you to just repeat this prayer. They might be my words, but I pray that they would reflect your heart to God in this moment. Just say, dear God, I come to you today and I'm sorry for all I've done wrong, but I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. Jesus rose and I want to rise. I want to walk with you starting right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.